Thanks be to God. Thank you, Katie, for reading our scripture passage with all those references to the law and justice. It seemed fitting for a lawyer to read that passage for us, so thank you for doing that. Friends, it's great to be with you this morning. My name is Charlie Dunn, and if you have been with us for the last few weeks, you know we've been in this teaching series called Faith You Can Explain. And we've been looking at these uh, five chapters in uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans 1 through 5. And, you know, in some sense, Romans 1 through 5 is really uh, the most concise summary in the Bible of what the whole Bible is all about. Um, If you want to know what do Christians believe, Romans 1 through 5 uh, really lays that out uh, pretty well for us. And we felt like this is an important uh, series for us to be in as a church, really for two reasons. Um, First... Uh, Because I think all of us, those of us who do already identify um, as followers of Jesus, we're wanting to grow uh, in our own understanding of what we believe. And often, uh, you don't fully understand something until you feel like you can explain it, until you could actually articulate it and teach it to somebody else. And so we're wanting to grow in our own understanding of what we believe in a way that hopefully deepens our love for God and our desire to live a life of obedience to him. Uh, But at the same time, we are a church that longs to see friends and neighbors uh, discover uh, the love and the grace that we ourselves have found in Jesus. Uh, We want our non-believing friends and neighbors to come to know this Jesus too. And so we're asking the question, how how do we articulate our faith? How do we share our faith and explain our faith in a way that actually speaks to some of the deepest questions and longings of those who don't yet know Jesus? And if you're with us last Sunday, you might remember that Paul wraps up Romans chapter 1 by addressing this question of, of what's wrong with our world. You know, most people, whether you're a Christian or not, everybody has an answer to that question. Why do I think the world is as messed up and as broken as it is? And you might recall, we said that Paul's answer to that question is he says what's most deeply wrong with our world, most of the misery in our world is on account of the fact that all of us have a God complex. Deep down inside, every single one of us already knows that there is a God, that we were created, by God, that we are dependent upon this God, as we sang earlier, that it's his breath in our lungs, he made us, he sustains us, we are accountable to him. Deep down, every one of us knows that. But Paul says what we do with that knowledge is we suppress it, we push it down. Why do we do that? Because we want the perception of being in control. We want to be our own God. We want to run our own lives. All of us have a God complex where instead of wanting to worship the true God, we would rather worship ourselves or worship a variety of other things. And what Paul says in Romans 1 is that it's this disordered worship that then leads us into all sorts of different disordered behaviors and attitudes in our lives. And Paul ends Romans 1 with this long list of all of the different ways that that disordered worship can express itself. Just to remind you, this is Romans 1, 29 through 31. He says that we are people who have become filled with every kind of wickedness, 
evil, greed, depravity. He says we are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slander, God-haters, insolence, arrogance, boasting. We invent ways of doing evil, disobeying our parents, no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. How'd you like to meet that person? I mean, that's, that's a pretty bleak description of humanity. And I think that for many of us, we could look at that And if you read the news, if you pay attention to things that happen in our world, you recognize some people are pretty bad people, right? You you hear about some pretty terrible things that that take place in our world, some pretty violent things that happen in our world. And I think it's easy for us to say, okay, Paul, fine. There are some people clearly who, having rejected any belief in God, refusing to acknowledge God, that leads them into some form of, of lawless injustice, Or maybe it leads them into very just like self-interested hedonism. I get that. Certainly there are some people who who live in that way, but not everybody does. Maybe you were hearing that that, that passage last Sunday and you you thought to yourself, okay, I know um, some people like that, but I also know a lot of people who, yeah, maybe they don't believe in God. Maybe they don't acknowledge God or maybe they don't share my faith in Jesus but they're really nice people. They're really good people. They're they're people that I would want to spend time with. They're people with whom I would entrust my children. They're people with whom I'd be glad to work alongside them. Paul, what about them? People who don't believe in God, they don't know God, but they seem to live really good lives. And you know, I think I saw this, this contrast kind of played out in, in real time of how somebody who, who, who refuses to, to worship God, somebody who doesn't acknowledge God, can, can then live in, in such polar opposite, dramatically different ways. Uh, when I was a sophomore in college, so when, when I was a sophomore, I spent some time studying abroad. I came back, and I ended up getting assigned to a roommate. I had no choice in the matter, and ended up getting paired up uh, with a guy whose name, believe it or not, was also Charlie. And that was about all that we had in common, that shared uh, name. Charlie was a wild man. Charlie was was probably um, one of the most consistent atheists I have ever known because he was somebody who said, look, I don't believe in God. I don't believe I'm accountable to anybody else for how I live my life. I'm going to do basically whatever I want to do, whatever I think is in my self-interest. And so, uh, you know, often most nights of the week, he was coming back with with different girls to our um, adjoining room. He was out late um, partying uh, most nights of the week. He was glad to take notes from somebody else for a class that he did not uh, take. He was willing to embellish his resume to try to get a better um, internship in the summer. This was somebody who was kind of unabashedly, shamelessly committed to his own self-interest, which was pretty logical given the fact that he didn't believe in God. And so here was Charlie on the one hand, that's kind of like the end of Romans 1 sort of person that Paul describes. But on the other hand, that sophomore year, I also made a friend named Michael. And Michael was somebody who had been raised in a very loving family environment. He was somebody who um, was was very um, mannerly. He um, was a hard worker. He respected other people, respected the women that he was dating. Uh, He would often serve at the local homeless uh, shelter uh, nearby our campus. He would serve food there. He was involved in different um, community service and justice efforts on campus. And so I just began to think to myself, this guy's got to be a Christian. 
And so at some point, as I was becoming friends with him, I, I just asked him, and I said, hey, are, are you a Christian? And he said, no. He said, no, I'm not a Christian. In fact, he said, neither of my parents are religious at all. I grew up um, in a home where both parents were, were agnostic, and, and if you believe in God, that's great for you. I don't believe in God. He said, I feel like I can be a really good person without God. I can be good without God. And maybe some of you have known people like Michael. Maybe you have family members. Maybe you have coworkers. Maybe you have neighbors. You have friends. And, and these are not people who share your faith in Jesus. They do not believe in God, but they seem like really good people. In fact, frankly, sometimes they might be better people than we are. They're more disciplined, they're more generous, they seem more compassionate, more philanthropic, and actually sometimes that can be a bit of a faith-shaking sort of experience because you look at friends or neighbors like that and you think, gosh, they seem like they're pretty good without God. So who am I to say that they really need God in their life? It seems like they're doing pretty good without him. Or who am I to say that, that they need to trust in Jesus as their savior, if they want to spend eternity with God. I mean, gosh, is, is that fair? Is that really just that God is going to condemn them to an eternity apart from him just because they didn't believe in God, but they lived such good lives? Maybe that's a question you've asked yourself before. Maybe your, your friends have asked that question of you. It's the question that Paul is asking here in Romans 2, 1 through 16. And so it's the question we're going to take up uh, together this morning. And I want to do so by uh, looking at this teaching really under four headings. Here they are. You can see them on the screen. Uh, first, uh, Paul says you can be good without God. You can be good without God, first point. Second point is that being good, Paul says, is not good enough. Thirdly, that our goodness can actually become a form of badness. And then that fourthly, the good news is for those who are not good. And so we'll walk through those four points together. So first, Paul says you can be good without God. You're a pretty moral, good person without acknowledging God, having a relationship with God. Look at what he says in verses 14 through 15. Paul says, indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. What's Paul saying? He's saying that every human being, whether you acknowledge God or not, is made in God's image. We are moral beings. Unlike all the rest of the animals, we were made in God's image. That means we are moral creatures. We're often assessing what is right and what is wrong. And what Paul is saying is whether you believe in God or not, there is part of us that, that often does by nature the things that we know to be right, that we often want to do the good things that we know to be good. Because God's law has been written upon our hearts. And so it shouldn't shock us then. It shouldn't surprise us then when you see neighbors who don't share our faith in Jesus, but they're really good parents. They're really devoted to their children. 
They make sacrifices to care for their children. They're engaged in their lives. It shouldn't surprise us when we have coworkers who don't share our faith in Jesus, but they are people who do their work with integrity. They do their work well. They're people that we enjoy working alongside them. It shouldn't shock us when we see neighbors who are serving in the community. They're giving generously of their time and their resources to work for the the good, maybe, of people with fewer resources in our city. You know, one of the organizations that I often think about along these lines is a group like Doctors Without Borders. Anybody ever heard of Doctors Without Borders before? Many of the doctors, the women and men who serve in that organization, they're not Christians, but they're willing to forego high-paying jobs in American hospitals to move across the world to give up a lot of their comfort and convenience to be able to provide health care resources to people who otherwise wouldn't have them. And it shouldn't shock us, it shouldn't surprise us then when we see people who don't share our faith um, doing a lot of good things in the world and behaving in good moral ways. And frankly, we should be pretty glad for the opportunities to work alongside them, to be able to maybe work with coworkers who are people of integrity or to be able to work for the good of our city alongside people who don't share our faith. Sometimes there's this Christian pressure to say, you know what, I'm only going to spend time with other Christians. I'm only going to serve alongside other Christians, people who share my faith. We should be people who are willing um, to work for the common good of our world alongside others um, who don't share our faith Um, and yet who nevertheless reflect some of the goodness of God. Uh, Martin Luther once put it this way. He said, I'd rather be ruled by a wise Turk than by a foolish Christian. I'd rather be ruled by a wise Turk than by a foolish Christian. What did he mean by that? A Turk in his day was a Muslim. And what he meant was, look, you know, here's somebody in a position of authority. Maybe it's your boss at work. Maybe it's um, a government official. Maybe it's a school administrator. He said, I'd rather have somebody in that role who's good at their job. They're competent. They're wise. They're humble. They work with integrity than to have a Christian in that role who's incompetent, who doesn't know what they're doing. Somebody in our church was sharing with me recently how when, when he moved to DFW, Uh, He got this job for this company, and he was excited about it because he had heard that um, the boss was a very committed Christian. And so they would pray at the start of their workday with with all their coworkers. They were very much encouraged to go and worship at a local church. He thought, this is is really neat. And and yet over time, one of the things he noticed uh, is that actually um, this this boss was was not um, paying their employees fairly. Um, Compared to other companies that were doing similar work, he noticed that they weren't always very ethical in their dealings with their their clients. And actually for him, that was fairly a a faith-shaking kind of experience because he thought, man, this guy is so um, out front with being a Christian, but he's not actually doing the the work um, with integrity. And, and, And that's why, by the way, sometimes I get a little bit wary You know, when people, um, in trying to to develop their business, uh, lead so much with being a Christian. Have you ever seen that before? 
People who talk about being a Christian right away, they put it on their business card. They want you to know they're a Christian. Sometimes people even seek out churches for that reason because they think, you know, I can get more business if, if people see me as part of the community um, there. It's a little bit like in the TV show The Office. You remember Dwight Schrute, if you've seen that episode, he goes to a co-worker's baptism, and during the prayer request moment, he's trying to sell printers uh, in uh, the worship service. And, you know, sometimes Christians can, can, can lead in that way. And, and I'll just tell you, you look, if, if our plumbing is not working in our home, you know, the first requirement is you, you want somebody um, who's a good plumber, right? My first question is not, are you a Christian? My first question is, are, can you fix uh, the plumbing problem? And then let's talk about um, faith along with that. But the point uh, to all of this is simply to say, look, we should expect, we shouldn't be surprised if our non-believing friends and neighbors um, are, are moral good people in a lot of ways because we know that God has written his law on every single person's heart. And so we should be willing to work for the common good together. Along with that, uh, along with that we recognize that not only does, does everybody know implicitly what is right and wrong, everybody has this inherent sense of justice. Everybody has an inherent sense of justice. What is justice? The sense that those who do good should be rewarded and those who do evil or wrong ought to be punished. Have you ever heard that before? Maybe even from a non-believing friend, somebody who says to you, they say, look, in God's economy, as God dispenses his salvation, why doesn't God just, you know, take the good people to be with him in heaven and, and, and punish the bad people and send them to hell? Why not save the good people and judge the bad people? You ever heard that before? And, and I want to suggest to you that when you hear that way of thinking, that, that, that actually to some degree we should affirm that. That to some degree, that is the innate human understanding of what justice is. That's what Paul says justice is. Listen to this in verses 6 through 8. Paul says, God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. And then he adds in verse 11, for God does not show favoritism. Like that, that is impartial justice. And sometimes for a person who doesn't believe in God, even to be able to affirm that innate sense of justice can actually be the catalyst that begins to move them towards faith in Jesus. Uh, Becky Pipper, in that book, Stay Salt, that I've been referencing a lot uh, throughout this series, she had a friend named Mary. And she said, for years, Mary was the kind of person who thought that religion was a crutch. Why do I need faith in God? I don't need God to be good. Mary thought of herself as a pretty good person um, who didn't need God. And, and Becky said that the thing that began... Um, to turn Mary towards a relationship with God was actually affirming this innate sense of justice that we all have. Um, when Mary's niece um, was, was sexually assaulted by her boss. And, and for Mary, that was just outrageous, and it should have been outrageous. It was so angering to her. Mary thought to herself, she thought, you know, um, this, this person, this boss who would do something like this uh, to my niece, who would take advantage of her in that way, 
He's not somebody who just needs therapy to be rehabilitated. He needs to be punished, right? There needs to be justice for the wrong that he has done. And and what Becky said to her friend Mary, she said, you know, Mary, I'm so sorry for what has happened to your niece. And she said, we've talked about faith before. I just want to, to affirm to you that the God of the Bible is morally outraged about what has happened to your niece. And that the God of the Bible always stands against injustice. And you see, Becky was affirming to her friend that there are certain wrongs in this world that need to be punished. That innate sense that there should be justice, that when evil and wrong is done, it should be judged, just as good should be commended and rewarded. Now, maybe you hear that and you think to yourself, hang on a second. Don't we as Christians believe that you are not saved based on your good works, but you are saved based on faith in Jesus? We're going to come back to that later in the sermon. The answer is yes, but hear this. We are judged according to our works. We are justified, made right with God through faith in Jesus, but Paul says we are judged according to our works. And so we want to affirm with our non-believing friends. Yes, to punish the bad, and we should recognize and not be surprised by the fact that we may have friends who are good without God, who live moral lives without believing in God. So there's the first point. You can be good without God. But then secondly, Paul says, that's great, but being good is not good enough. Being good is not good enough. And, and, and maybe you, you ask, well, um, but why? You know, why would that be? This gets to the heart of our question this morning, doesn't it? Like if you, if you have a, a good and moral um, friend or, or neighbor and you think to yourself, why would God condemn them? Why would God judge them just because they don't believe in God, just because they don't believe in Jesus? Uh, or to put it a different way, have you ever asked yourself the question before, what about the person who's never heard of Jesus? You ever wondered that? And what about the person on the other side of the world, somebody who's never gotten to hear the gospel, they've never gotten to read the Bible in their own language? I mean, people all throughout history, there are millions, billions of people who've never gotten to hear the good news of what Jesus has done for them. What about them? Are you saying they're going to be judged? They're going to spend eternity apart from God just because they never got to hear the gospel for themselves? And the answer is no. Now, because Paul says that God does not show favoritism. It's not as if, well, this person got to hear, lucky for them, this person didn't get to hear, sorry for them, better luck next time, if you have a next time. No. No, what Paul says is that every person is going to be judged according to what they know. So if any of you have children... If you have multiple children, and and if you've ever, you know, um, found your children, maybe let's say you've got a nine-year-old, you've got a four-year-old, and the nine-year-old and the four-year-old are both doing something that they know to be wrong. They're both getting into trouble. You catch them in the act of that. What are you going to do in the way that you dispense punishment? The judgment for the nine-year-old is probably going to be a little bit harsher than that for the four-year-old. Why? Because you're going to say, look, nine-year-old, you knew better. Right? You knew much more of my will for you as your parent than your, your four-year-old sibling then. So it, it may be that they are, are judged to a higher standard. Why? Because they knew more. 
And you see, the same Paul is saying for, for people as human beings, that we are judged according to what we know. We're judged according to what we know. Francis Schaeffer um, was a Christian theologian, philosopher, um, one of the people who's most um, shaped and influenced my thinking, reading his writings over the years. And Francis Schaeffer said, imagine it this way. Imagine that you're standing before God on the day of judgment. And he says, on that day, you're, you're standing there before God, and God looks at you, and he says, look, if you have never read the Bible before, you're not going to be judged according to the Bible. You never heard the Ten Commandments before. You're not going to be judged by the Ten Commandments. You've never heard about Jesus before. You're not going to be judged for rejecting God's grace in Jesus. You're going to be judged according to what you know. So you say, phew, right? What a relief to know that, that I'm not going to be judged by those standards. And yet in that moment, what God could do is he could pull out this invisible tape recorder. And you can date the illustration just by hearing a tape recorder. Does anybody even have a tape recorder anymore? We'll, we'll say, and God will open the app with a voice recording on your phone. And, and, and on that, he's going to show you that every single time you ever looked at another person, you ever looked at other people and you said, hey, this is how you ought to behave. This is what you should do. This is how you should treat other people. This is how you should use your money. This is how you should show compassion. This is how you should show forgiveness when you're wrong. Every time you've ever said or thought those words, you ought to do this, you should do this, it's been recording. And you see, in that moment, all God is going to have to do is press play. And we're not going to be judged by what we don't know. We're going to be judged according to the standard that we do know. And yet Paul says every single person, we all know God's law. It's written on our hearts. Often our conscience convicts us and condemns us for that because we do the very things that we know to be wrong. That none of us lives up to our own standards. Much less do we live up to God's standards. And you look at verse 16, the thing about God, we're told in verse 16, is that God will judge the secrets of our hearts. The secrets of our hearts will be revealed. Other people only see our behaviors. Other people only hear our words, but God sees our hearts. He sees our motivations, he sees our thoughts, he sees our desires. That's why Jesus' teaching is so convicting, because Jesus will say things like, look, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But Jesus says any person who has ever lusted after another, objectified somebody for their own sexual gratification in their heart, he said it's the same thing as adultery. Jesus says you've heard it said that you shall not commit murder, but if you're driving in traffic and somebody cuts you off and you say, you idiot. I'm sure we've all been in that place before or even just to look down your nose at somebody else, to treat them as if they're not even worth your time, to, to, to look down on somebody else. Jesus says that's the same as writing them off. It's the same as murder. Now, fortunately, our laws as a society are not designed that way because the courts, they don't see our hearts, but God does, and God is saying, look, the tree might be murder, but the seed of hatred is there either way. He sees our hearts. I mean, and how many of us would be just terrified if you found out that on Monday morning, everything you've ever thought, every desire you've ever had, every motivation you've ever had is going to be broadcast on the news for the world to see? 
I think there's, there's nobody who would want to befriend me after that. And, and so what Paul is saying is he's saying, look, there may be some really morally good people, relatively speaking, compared to, to other people, and, and, and yet when you, when you really consider it, nobody is good enough. Nobody lives up to our own standards, much less do we live up to God's standards. And it's actually when you begin to admit that and to see that, that you're on the way to a real relationship with the living God. Becky Pippert shares in her book about this friend Mary. She said she was talking to, to Mary, and Mary said to her, she said, you know, Becky, I'm not a Christian. I've always laughed at the Christian belief that we are all sinners but she said, I'm not laughing anymore. I used to believe in my own goodness, but what I've come to see isn't just the evil of this, this man and what he did to her niece. She said, it's actually this murderous rage that I feel towards him in my heart. What this experience has taught me is that none of us are truly innocent. That being good is not good enough. And when you're willing to admit that, that's the very thing that begins to lead you toward a relationship with the living God. But when you don't admit that, when you refuse to see that about yourself, that goodness actually becomes a form of badness. That's the third point that Paul is making in this passage. Your goodness can become a form of badness when you refuse to see your own badness. Listen to what Paul says at the beginning of chapter 2. Remember at the end of chapter one, he said, there are people who have greed and envy, who, who gossip and who slander. And he says, look, if, if you look at that and, and you say, and, and you condemn and you judge other people for those things, and yet you do those very same things, he says, you condemn yourself. And he says, the reality is that we look at that list of sins and, 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 and there's, 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 there's guilt, there's truth for every single one of us in that list. But when we cover that up, when we ignore that, when we judge and condemn others for what they do, but we don't acknowledge the badness in our own hearts, what happens is it leads to hypocrisy. It leads to self-righteousness. It leads to judgmentalism. It leads to hatred uh, towards other people. Our goodness becomes a form of badness when we're unwilling to see our own badness. Remember that story that Jesus told in Luke 15? It's really the same thing as Romans 1 and Romans 2 about the father with the two sons. And the younger son, he goes out and he's this kind of shameless sinner who says that, Father, I don't want a relationship with you. I just want your stuff. And so he gets his inheritance. He goes out and he blows it on, on prostitutes and wild living. But then he sees what he's done. He sees how he's rejected his father and he knows his need for forgiveness. And his father, when he sees him, embraces him, throws his arms around him, welcomes him home in this abundant grace. But at the end of the story, who's the brother who's outside of the feast? Who's outside of the feast that in Jesus' teaching represents the kingdom of God? It's the older brother, the one who's followed all the rules. The one who's convinced of his own moral goodness, he's the one who's outside of the feast because he's blinded to his own selfishness. He's blinded to his own sin. He's blinded to how he also has been trying to use his goodness to get leverage over his father. And it's not as if one kind of sin is worse than the other or better than the other. The problem is that often for those of us who are so convinced of our goodness, 
is that it blinds us to our badness, which can actually lead to a, a deeper spiritual lostness. Goodness can become its own badness. You say, that sounds pretty bleak. This whole sermon has felt fairly bleak. But there's good news. You see, the good news is that you can experience grace. You can experience good news. And the only prerequisite for that is to recognize your own badness. The only prerequisite to experience the good news is to admit that you're not good. Look at what Paul says in verse 16. We'll end with this. Paul, in verse 16, he references his gospel. And he says that part of his gospel is that one day Jesus is going to come back and he's going to be the judge for every person who has ever lived. That's part of the gospel truth, yes. But the other part of the gospel is this incredible declaration that for those who've trusted in Jesus, judgment day has already come. Jesus was already judged on the cross for you. He already took the punishment for all of our moral badness. He already lived a life of perfect moral goodness. And the reward that such a life deserves, a life of perfect obedience to God, that's credited to us when we trust in Jesus. All the honor, all of the glory, the eternal life that is due, Paul says, to somebody who lives a life of perfect goodness, that's ours when we trust in this Jesus. Paul says we're judged according to our works, but we're justified by faith in Jesus. And the only prerequisite to experiencing this good news is to admit that you're not good. The only prerequisite is to recognize that we are not saved because we are better. We're saved because of grace. In fact, it shouldn't shock us when, when, we, when we meet non-believing friends who might be better than us in certain ways. They might be more disciplined. They might be more caring. They might be more loving. That doesn't have to undermine our sense of self-righteousness because we say, look, I wasn't saved because I was better. I've been saved because of grace. That's the gospel. And it's when we come to the, the Lord's table that we, we acknowledge that, we admit that, and we receive that grace together. So let's pray as we come to the Lord's table this morning. Our Heavenly Father, for those of us who are here in worship this morning, those of us who are seeking to some degree to live in obedience to your will for our lives, we know how easy it is for us to somehow convince ourselves that, that we are the good people, that somehow we have earned or deserved your love for us. We cover up and we overlook the reality of, of the indifference and the selfishness and the sin that resides in each of our hearts. We thank you for this opportunity this morning to not have to run from that, not to have to hide that, but to, to freely confess and admit that being good is not good enough. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for, for freeing us from the way that our goodness can become a form of badness, for opening our eyes to see our need 
for your son, Jesus, and what it is that he has come to do for us in our place. And I pray for every person in this room today. I pray that, that if there's anybody here today and we're still trying to hold on to this image of ourselves as good people, that we could lay that down before your cross. We would see our need for your grace and that we would know that, that while judgment is according to works, that justification is by faith through your grace to us in Jesus. And we receive that and we rejoice in that good news this morning. I pray for each of us today that we would, we would believe and know that you forgive us and you delight in us. You honor us just as you honor your son Jesus as we come to this table today. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, friends, as we've done on...